Welcome to the SF Weekly Podcast. I'm Nick Veronin, your editor-in-exile, and I'm joined today, as always, by Kevin Hume, a.k.a. The Kevinator, our inimitable photo editor. How's it going, Kevin? How you doing, dude? Doing all right, doing all right. Um, so, Kevin, I understand you've seen them film Showgirls, the, the critically panned 1990 film starring former Saved by the Bell starlet Elizabeth Berkley? Uh, I think it's 1995. Um, cause it what was did like I say? 1990. I'm an idiot. So 95 in my script, Kevin, I read that wrong. You did read that wrong. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it was like right after, uh, done like right after saved by the bell that saved by the bell kind of finished its run. And, uh, Elizabeth Berkeley was, I think by de- taking this, trying to, sh- you know, take off the shackles of being a teen star and doing some really adult risque film. Um, sure. It's kind of like the widest released NC 17 movie ever. Uh, you know, that's not a very common rating uh, in the rating systems anymore. Most movies that get that rating uh, initially end up getting recut so that they can get either an R rating or they just go with a not rated. Um, so this movie mm. decided to stick with it. And, um, you know, it made a big, it made a big deal because of that back in the nineties. Um, it's, it's written by Joe Esterhaus, I believe directed by, uh, Paul Verhoeven. Uh, both of them are kind of known for these kind of cheesy schlocky films from the late eighties and early nineties. And that's exactly what this film is. Uh, for most people, for anybody that doesn't know, uh, Elizabeth Berkeley plays this uh, woman, young woman who comes to Vegas and uh, finds her way into the showgirl scene and um, sort of befriends the head starlet and tries to usurp her, uh, who's played ah. by Sean, um, and uh, sort of takes over by seducing, I believe, uh, the guy who's in charge of the production, who's played by Kyle MacLachlan, who uh, you may know as the mayor on Portlandia. Um, Ah. Yeah. It's this just terrible, over-the-top thing, film uh, production. You know, there's lots of nudity and lots of really bad dialogue and really cheesy there's this i think the thing that everybody's everybody remembers is the 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 sex scene in the pool between kyle mclaughlin and elizabeth berkeley because it's just this just bizarre over-the-top performance from elizabeth berkeley where she just kind of (laughs) i know i don't know if this is pg-13 rated podcast or not (laughs) go for it kind of rides him like like a bucking bronco and it's just so (laughs) over the top and splashy and just so ridiculous that you can't help but laugh you know it's that's just sort of the way that this film goes it's just really terribly overdone and so bad that it's that it's kind of awesome like it's a guilty pleasure you know i don't think people think like yeah showgirls this is a great film no it's friggin awful and it's fun to watch thank you for catching me up on that i i have i confess i haven't seen it but uh the reason i ask is there is a new documentary uh, i guess we're 25 years out from from the original release of showgirls it's called you don't know me spelled n-o-m-i because uh berkeley's character's name is nomi malone mm-hmm. uh and uh 
So apparently after this film came out and critics shat all over it, um, perhaps justifiably, uh, <laughs> it became a cult hit. And um, this documentary explores that uh, f- phenomenon. Uh, so you mentioned that it earned an NC-17 rating in 1995. Yeah. Um, I got it. So you've seen it. How does the nudity compare in your estimation <laughs> to the nudity we're used to today on shows like Game of Thrones or uh, Perry Mason, which I, I've been watching. Um, I've been watching too. Um, you know, I don't, I know this is, you know, uh, the thing in Hollywood is that, you know, women, women pose, you know, nude and men don't really. So, you know, Game mm-hmm. of Thrones kind of stepped up the penis game. Um, right. I feel like HBO gets away with a lot in general. more movie in general. Uh, because it's not rated uh, than than Showgirls does. I don't necessarily recall offhand if there is any full frontal male nudity in it. Um, I don't recall there being more risque sex scenes per se. Like I just really recall that one, um, and that's not really even that bad in in terms of in hindsight. You are touching upon all the points that I'm about to touch because I have a. I have a point to make, Kevin, as always. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think we are, uh, and maybe it's just HBO, but I think we're living in a, a more woke era. And uh, here's why. I mean, we're Americans. The nudity we get, it's it's not like the tasteful nudity you get in, in, European, nud- in, in European movies. The kind of nudity that's just like, this is what we are. We're human. You know, we're sexual beings. The nudity we get in American movies is always kind of meant to shock or titillate, and even today, uh, but at least maybe we're getting more equal opportunity about it. If HBO is 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 a, a metric, I mean, I, I've been watching um, Insecure, a lot of butts in that show. Um, <laughs> no, but like uh, forgetting Sarah Marshall, prolonged shot of Jason Siegel full frontal. Now that was what 2010 ish, uh, but that was played for gags. Yeah, was played for gags. And, and now we're talking. Uh, I, we mentioned. I mentioned Perry Mason. Uh, you mentioned the Game of Thrones and the male nudity. Um, a lot of dong shots <laughs> in, in that show in Perry Mason. Uh, breasts as well, but you know, plenty of dong. And I think it means that it's gritty or real or something. But I guess what I, what I'm getting at is like um, now it's a little bit more just like people can be naked. Um, cause even, so going back to Sarah Marshall, uh, that was around the same time I think we saw, or maybe Bruno was a little bit earlier, but it was like <laughs> the helicoptering scene oh of Bruno. And Bruno. Have you, have you seen that? No, I have not seen Bruno. No, it just but cuts to a helicopter. Uh, do you guys, do you know what a helicopter is, Kevin? Yes, correct. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so Dick's being played for laughs. And so maybe we're being, we're get, I guess maybe we are getting more comfortable with our bodies as Americans, as this country that was uh, founded by, by Puritans um, who, who uh, you know, at least when I was growing up, we were taught in high school that they, they moved, they, they set out across the Atlantic to escape religious persecution. But I think that <laughs> the truth is they set out across the Atlantic so that they could, so that they could persecute others <laughs> and uh, whip them into shape uh, in their very puritanical um, uh, buttoned up uh, way of living. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is that we're trying and maybe we're getting there fumbling in the dark 
toward a more perfect woke union through full frontal nudity. Not a bad, not a bad concept. You can read all about You Don't Know Me, the documentary on Showgirls on our website under the film tab. Uh, the story is called You Don't Know Me, Reconsider Showgirls. It's by Richard Von Busack. It's a good read. We also had a story this week about San Francisco's continued attempts to keep restaurants and shops alive. The Shared Streets program kicked off in Chinatown with entire streets shut down so restaurants could serve food outside and shops could sell their wares out on the street. And Kevin, I wanted to ask you, do you miss eating food at restaurants? Do you miss table service? Oh, man. Specifically. Yeah, I mean, definitely. You know, I miss being able to go out and try new restaurants, uh, spend a day out doing stuff and then getting a meal at a, at a spot nearby and coming home. A group of my friends, one of our things we started doing uh, was going out for what we called meetups but like M-E-A-T, where we would go, <laughs> we would go uh, and at restaurants and eat. Uh, we did it with sushi. We did it with a um, Cajun, a Creole food place in Berkeley. Ooh, um, you know, we had a bunch of stuff lined up and, and, and then this pandemic stopped everything. So we talk about food a lot in that group. And, and you know, it's hard, you know, be, not being able to go out with friends and, and have a meal together. Um, so yeah, dude, I miss that a lot. Takeout still exists. Uh, and it's good because we still have managed to get some things that make us happy. It's just not the same, but you know, it's still good that we can support restaurants. I haven't, have you, have you eaten out, uh, in this whole thing? Have you gone to an outside restaurant during all of this? this is, I will tell you what I've done. One time I did takeout and I got there, uh, and ordered there like I didn't order ahead and um there was um outside seating and I sat down outside and I had a cocktail while I waited for my food okay that's that is the extent of it um we've talked about going out and uh you know eating outside or having some drinks outside and it just it doesn't seem worth it for us that we 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 do go out when our friends have things to do like you know i think i mentioned on a previous podcast that i went to lake Merritt um and you know had a little bit of a socially distanced picnic as much as we could there were a lot of people out there yeah um i went to i went to hang out with my brother this past weekend um and we just decided to be in a bubble together so we didn't mask up or anything we went to a, a cabin up in near sierra city i believe it was Oh, cool. Um, and uh, this weekend I'm going uh, camping with a core group of friends. So we'll be outside and we'll, you know, we'll be cautious around each other and we'll, we'll wash our hands when we're using shared surfaces and stuff like that. Right, right. Um, that's my comfort level. Yeah, I've sort of had similar in that um, my best friend and uh, his wife and their, their young daughter, who I would visit, you know, pretty regularly with a couple times a month. Uh, we've gotten together a few times here and there and done outside meals. Uh, they came over this weekend actually, and we ordered takeout and um, sat in our little outdoor patio here. The first time they've kind of been over to this apartment uh, since I moved here just shortly before all this happened. Um, so that was nice. Um, and then I went and got a, uh, barbecue with a, a buddy of mine a couple weeks ago and we sat out on a bench at like the around the berkeley marina and had a beer 
uh, together while eating barbecue from uh, Everett and Jones Barbecue and sat okay. at the marina and had a beer together uh, on a bench. And, you know, it was a little a little weird. Uh, it was the first time I've sort of ventured out with somebody that's a friend, colleague, but don't isn't part of my sort of bubble or whatever. Um, but it was, it was, it was okay. Just, there were people, you know, around us walking around some with masks, some without. So kind of a similar situation to you outside at, uh, at Lake Merritt. I think that's kind of the next step, you know, uh, kind of slowly venturing out and exploring. Well, you can read that story, uh, under our dining tab on our website, uh, Chinatown hosts city's first shared street is the headline coming up. We speak with SF Weekly contributor Nula Bashari about her profile of a former San Quentin inmate who is helping others escape the notorious Marin County prison. We touch base with Benjamin Schneider to discuss how Bart is battling nimbyism, and we chow down virtually with uh, Grace Lee, who tells us about how she used a San Francisco restaurant's mail order kit to make her own noodles from scratch. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Bashari, former SF Weekly News Editor and current contributor. Welcome back to the podcast, Nula. Thanks for having me. Of course. This week you filed a story about Stephen Lieb, a lawyer who spent 19 years in San Quentin and who now works in the San Francisco Public Defender's Office. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah, sure. So this was a story um, that fell into my lap um, with a source in the Public Defender's Office. And I thought it was a, an interesting take on um, basically kind of redemption um, and the inside issues that are going on in San Quentin during COVID-19. So Steph Lieb, um, he goes by Steph, his full name is Stephen, uh, spent 33 years in prison for uh, first degree murder. And he got released in 2013. But the last 19 years of his sentence were spent in San Quentin, um, which is currently undergoing a massive outbreak of COVID-19. Um, it's pretty dire in there. At least 12 people have died, um, and there's over 1,000 people who've tested positive. So what was interesting about Steph's story is not just that he was incarcerated, but also that his current job is now in the public defender's office, and he's working to free people from San Quentin um, during this epidemic. It's really just the perfect breeding ground for a, a really contagious disease to spread. For example, it's an old prison. I think it might be the oldest state prison in California. And they don't have doors on the cells. They have um, bars, so air can move really freely. There's no windows. Um, the ventilation is really, really bad. Uh, the food is predictably awful, so it's very hard to stay healthy just from a diet perspective. And then there are rooms um, with bunks really close to each other, so it's very difficult to social distance. Um, and Steph himself worked in the kitchen for several years, and he said they were constantly running out of disinfectant um, and plastic gloves. So just the the possibility of spreading illness is is really profound. And while it's something that I've heard about from other sources like lawyers and other articles, I think it, it provided a really important perspective to talk to someone who has lived that life um, and who understands 
exactly what's at play uh, inside when it comes to the spread of disease. Right. And uh, I imagine he was able to give you insights into maybe the culture in there too. This didn't really come up in your story, but did you get to talk about, you know, um, how, how guards and the powers that be uh, might, uh, might respond to a prisoner who is saying that, uh, oh, I don't feel well because um, we had a, we had another story a couple of weeks ago about um, an ICE detention facility and um, that story was uh, set and sort of began and, and had a timeline that started at the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, what that writer found was that um, in the beginning, um, sort of prisoners' concerns were, were downplayed. Um, did anything like that come up in your, in your talk with Steph? Not so much. He definitely expressed concern for the many, many people who worked at San Quentin who have also contracted the virus. Um, you know, they're victims of this as well. Um, but I think one thing that, that is an issue at the very core of how this outbreak began in San Quentin is a lack of <laughs> good decision making um, and respectful decision making about the risk of coronavirus being spread in prisons by decision makers with the California Department of um, Corrections and Rehabilitation. So this outbreak started in San Quentin because 121 men were transferred from another prison in Chino to the center and they weren't tested and many of them showed up sick. And so that transfer of people into the population at San Quentin just, you know, it, it just caught like wildfire. Um, and so I think, you know, it's, it's, we didn't talk so much about the day-to-day -day interactions with the guards, but when you look at the prison system as a whole, who is making these decisions and how they're being made needs to be really heavily scrutinized in order to prevent things like this from happening in the future. It seems to me that there are a number of takeaways from this story, and one is that there are a lot of people locked up in San Quentin and elsewhere who who really don't need to be in there. They're not a risk to society, and inside they are at risk. Their lives are at risk, but it can be a challenging case to make um, to the public who has this perception about prisoners and has this perception about San Quentin in general. Um, what is the public defender's office doing? Uh, how are they making the argument that, that certain prisoners should be released and, and are safe to be released? Sure. So I think every case, um, there are as many examples of cases as there are people in there. Um, but there is this system of, of over-incarceration, one could say, where people are serving incredibly long sentences. Um, and that's been a problem throughout the United States, but definitely also in San Quentin. Um, and there's been a lot of reports that have been done to kind of show that the, re the recidivism rate, once you get out after serving a really long sentence, is really low. That as long as you have the support system of housing, of family, of mental health treatment, of substance use treatment, um, as long as everything that you need is lined up and in place, you're pretty set up to succeed. Um, and so a lot of the people that I believe the public defender's office are trying to get out are people who really served their time, you know, and who maybe committed a violent crime when they were really young, when they were 17 or 18. And science has shown that your brain is still not fully developed at that age, that your decision making is still a little bit flawed. And so 40 years later, as an adult, the chances that you're going to be a risk to society are really, really low. And there's a lot of ways that they track that, you know, people's participation in um, organizations within prison itself, um, the classes that they've taken, um, good behavior. So there's a lot of people for whom their sentencing can be readdressed, um, but it's an incredibly lengthy process. You know, not only do you need to prove that they had 
good behavior behind bars, but also that they have the support system that they need to succeed outside in the real world. Um, so part of what Steph is doing is coordinating all of that paperwork and filing these petitions and, you know, addressing every single thing that could possibly need to be presented in front of a judge and giving people a second chance at, at getting out a little bit earlier. So is Steph, by virtue of his past, particularly suited for this job? I think so, yes. I mean, being a lawyer um, and working in the public defender's office is, you know, a very difficult thing to do. So he was a lawyer before he was incarcerated back in the 1980s. And when he was released, he wanted to continue practicing law and particularly criminal defense uh, law. But the Bar Association didn't reinstate his license. So he ended up studying and taking the bar exam again which is really incredible because from everyone I know who's taken it says it's really, really hard. So um, that alone is an achievement. But I think also to understand the unique situations that are going on for people who are incarcerated um, is something that most lawyers will never fully get to understand unless they've lived that experience. Um, So Manu Raju, who is the uh, public defender, he's the head of the public defender unit, he had a really great quote about him. He said, Uh, From Steph's incarcerated years, he has a firsthand awareness of the inhumanity of the criminal legal system and life behind bars. It fuels within within him a fire for justice that really never stops burning. And I think that that last line about that, that fire for justice, it sounds a little bit cheesy, but it's it's important. This is a very draining job um, that I know they're working way more than 40 hours a week right now. And it's, it's easy to burn out, but he really understands the importance of this issue. And I think it's going to, um, drive him to be really successful in everything he does. All right. Well, it's a great story. You can read it on our website under the news tab. Thanks for joining us today, Mila. My pleasure. back with Benjamin Schneider, SF Weekly staff writer and the author of this week's story on how BART is beating the NIMBYs. Well, almost. How's it going, Ben? Going good. How are you, Nick? I'm okay. Can you tell us about your story? Yeah, so um, I'm a big follower of the public transit scene here in the Bay Area, and um, I came across a funny little detail about BART's big plans to build transit-oriented development its parking lots uh, across the system. And that is that this state law that was passed in 2018 called AB 2923, um, which is essentially going to force every BART station area to allow housing to get built where a parking lot currently stands, does not apply in the counties of San Mateo and Santa Clara. So the idea behind this bill was that it was really hard for uh, BART to build housing on its parking lots. Um, housing is obviously a much better use of space. Um, it creates a more environmentally friendly community, um, makes it easier for a lot more people to live without a car than a parking lot at the BART station. Um, and it was difficult for BART to to execute its vision of uh, building a lot of housing uh, where parking lots were. And so um, Assemblymember David Chu of San Francisco put forward this bill that essentially um, enshrines in state law BART's ability to create housing around its stations. But because of the structure of 
the BART governance and leadership, this bill does not apply in Santa Clara and San Mateo counties um, because they are not part of the BART district. Uh, this particular problem is kind of emblematic of a lot of the issues that are facing not only BART, but other transit agencies in the Bay Area, which is that the, the structures of the, the way these agencies are governed uh, make it really hard for them to kind of act uh, with big picture goals in mind and execute um, these long-term goals like building more housing or building a new transit line. As I understand it from editing and reading your story, uh, there are two key factors here. One is that just the entire transit landscape in the Bay Area is is very fractured. And the second is that uh, because of how fractured the system is, BART is having trouble forcing certain areas that it services to do things it believes are essential to the success of the system. Uh, in this case, uh, build housing on these sprawling parking lots. Um, so let's take these one at a time. Um, the fractured system. Can you talk a little bit about the history that you outline in your story and um, explain how we got to where we are and, and why it's a problem? When BART was founded uh, in 1957, uh, purely as a concept, it consisted of five counties, San Francisco, San Mateo, uh, Alameda, Contra Costa, and Marin. And then in 1961, San Mateo dropped out um, because of uh, Caltrain. They didn't call it Caltrain back then, but San Mateo leaders said, we have Caltrain, so we don't need BART. Um, and then shortly thereafter, Marin dropped out too because um, the, the idea was to put BART on the lower deck of the Golden Gate Bridge, and there was some disagreement among engineers about whether that was technically feasible. Um, that would have been pretty crazy to imagine, um, a, a train underneath the Golden Gate Bridge. In, in both cases, these are kind of bedroom communities um, that are kind of the anti-San Francisco. So there was definitely elements of racism and classism to uh, those decisions. Um, and as it would happen, those decisions had really big repercussions because it created a BART system that consisted of only three counties, San Francisco, Alameda, and Contra Costa. Um, so what, what that meant was that as the BART system has expanded um, and it went down into San Mateo County starting in the 90s um, and was fully extended to SFO in 2003. And just this year was extended down into Santa Clara County as part of a larger project that's eventually going to bring BART from the East Bay down to San Jose. Um, those moves have put BART in this strange position where the BART district um, with the elected representatives uh, who the people of, of the three district counties um, you know, vote to put in office and make all the major decisions uh, is, is, does not contain the entire uh, BART system. And so Santa, Santa Clara and San Mateo counties have created these kind of ad hoc rules to enter the BART system. Uh, in San Mateo's case, it, it means there's a surcharge on every BART trip that takes place in the county. And in the case of Santa Clara County, VTA, their transit agency in Santa Clara, constructed and planned and is um, doing all the sort of transit connections for their segment of BART. And they're contracting with BART to run their trains along the, the tracks that Sam, Santa Clara County has built. And so <laughs> I know that's a lot. And that's kind of the point. It's all really complicated in terms of how these things fit together. Um, and you end up with these 
side effects, one of which is the fact that this bill, AB 2923, that's intended to kind of spread the burden of building more housing near transit just doesn't apply in two counties where BART exists. Um, and it, it begs the question of what's, what kind of future challenges might BART also face uh, in this environment where its, its governance structure is, is very fragmented. Okay, so the second component of this story, which I mentioned uh, just a moment ago, is the nimbyism, the not-in-my-backyard component of this story. You touched upon it a little bit uh, just now, but can you explain how these different counties and cities within the counties um, have been acting when they are either forced to build on BART parking lots, which is the case in Contra Costa, um, and when they actually don't have to, which is the case in San Mateo and in Santa Clara, because they're not within the BART district. Yeah, well, so ever since BART really started pursuing this idea of building housing on its parking lots, uh, which kind of really got rolling in 2005, but then was accelerated in 2016 with an even more um, ambitious policy to build 20,000 new homes across the BART system in the next 20 years, um, they, they have faced steep resistance from local elected officials in the cities where BART runs, as well as a lot of neighbors who um, live nearby the BART stations. Um, And those complaints are often to do with the loss of parking, um, even though sometimes these projects include replacement parking for the the parking lots that are built over. Um, They have to do with traffic. Uh, They have to do with um, obstructed views. Uh, they have to do with, in some cases, a, a new types of people moving into the neighborhood. Um, you know, renters, poorer people, people of color. Um, you know, these sentiments aren't always stated outright, but there's, they're not going to say outright they don't want poor people, they don't want people of color in their neighborhood. But um, one of the main ways that those people are in fact kept out of these neighborhoods is um, by the fact that it is so difficult to build um, new housing new rental apartments in particular, or new subsidized affordable housing, even more so. BART was was dealing with these kinds of uh, complaints from local elected officials and neighbors, and it, it was very difficult for the agency to actually um, make the zoning changes and, and kind of make the deals that they needed to do to build housing um, on their parking lots as they intended. And so that's where this bill comes in. It was meant to... Um, streamline that process, make it a lot faster and easier. Uh, BART, you know, is the owner of all the land in which this this law is going to apply. Uh, these parking lots are right next to the transit station. So um, there's just sort of a lot of uh, very rational elements to it. It makes sense, you know, that BART as the owner of its own land could make decisions about what to do with it. And, and the fact that it is so close to transit, um, that's a very good way to help more people get around without a car. Um, improve BART's own bottom line uh, and, and you know, remove t- more taxpayer subsidies from, from the transit service. Uh, and so this bill was meant to just speed that process along, and it, it will. Um, and it's already starting to create zoning changes in some of these cities that were resistant to having housing built on their parking lot. Um, Berkeley has already n- now started uh, a process of changing its zoning to conform to AB 2923. And a couple other cities are working on it too. Uh, and so if the rest of the cities that this law applies to do not change their zoning codes, the, those codes will automatically change in 2022. Uh, the difference in San Mateo and Santa Clara counties 
is that there's no legal pressure for those places to change their laws to allow BART to build housing on, on their parking lots. And again, as I said, that, that doesn't mean that housing won't get built on those parking lots, but it, it very likely means that it will be a much more painful process, uh, a longer process that probably results in lower density, um, could very well result in fewer uh, affordable homes. Uh, and this is especially significant because San Mateo County in particular um, is probably, you know, by a number of objective measures, the best place to put housing in the BART system. Um, if, if you're vaguely familiar with how that geography works, San Mateo County is just south of San Francisco. So to take BART into the city from there, you don't have to cross the Transbay Tube, which as BART riders know, is extremely packed, uh, at least while the, before the pandemic got started. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of excess capacity for people to take BART from San Mateo County. Additionally, um, that county, home to YouTube, home to um, Oracle, a lot of other huge companies, uh, has this terrible jobs housing imbalance. I, I found this amazing statistic um, that over the past three years, San Mateo County has added just one new home for every 26 jobs they've added. Um, so if, if any county needs kind of like a kick in the butt to, to build some more housing, it's probably San Mateo County. Um, but again, because of this sort of loopy bureaucratic structure, um, that is not happening right now, at least under this particular law. Okay. Well, I, I want to thank you, uh, Ben. You are our um, resident uh, urban planning wonk here at SF <laughs> Weekly. Uh, you can read Ben's story, Bark Beats Nimbies, but not at every station, on our website, sfweekly.com, under the news tab. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thanks, Nick. We're back with Grace Lee, staff writer and the author of this week's piece, Pasta from Scratch is Easy with Mr. Holmes Bakehouse. How's it going, Grace? It's going good. How are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. Thanks for asking. Why don't you just jump right into it? Tell us a bit about your story. <laughs> this is definitely one of the lighter and happier stories that I've written, even though I think the I think the intro started out kind of depressing because it was just talking about how how sad I was <laughs> and how I rely on carbs <laughs> to meet that sadness. <laughs> yeah, to get that serotonin bump, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean for this piece, like I got to make pasta from scratch which was super fun um i used the uh, meal kit that mr homeless bakehouse which is this like la san francisco bakery that specializes in these like really cool creative pastries um they're selling these like meal kits that uh you can make like you can make like uh donuts or bagels or in this case uh pasta with them mm-hmm. and yeah it was just <laughs> it was a fun experience I, I take it this was your first time making noodles from scratch. Yeah, I, I've just never had the need before because <laughs> you can you can buy, you know, prepackaged like noodles, pasta of any shape <laughs> yeah. just from Safeway. So but but was it worth it? I mean, how, I mean, how how good was it to have these fresh, fresh noodles that you made yourself? I feel like because I don't actually know how to make pasta, like I've never <laughs> made pasta in a professional capacity. 
Um, they definitely don't taste as good as like the pasta you could probably get from um, a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Uh, or like I imagine there's probably like really fancy pre-packaged pasta out there in the world <laughs> that you could buy for about the same price as uh, this meal kit cost. It was uh, $25 for the meal kit and uh, that wasn't including shipping. And I think shipping bumped it up to about like 30 something ish dollars. Mm-hmm. Um I think the point of these meal kits is, isn't necessarily to make like really great tasting food. I think it's more just for the experience of it itself. Like it's just easy and comforting to get this box um, at your door that has all the dry ingredients you need in like pre-packaged bags and like there's a printed instructions booklet. <laughs> it's very, it's very much like a handheld process. Yeah. And uh, we live in a time where, uh, you know, uh, Adam Smith's idea of <laughs> specialization has been really, really taken out to to the to the far reaches of as far as it can go. And so, I mean, you you can you can go buy pasta from the store, and uh, it's just pasta. We think of pasta as something that's so easy, you know, pasta like mm-hmm. mac and cheese or like butter noodles. That's like one of the the easiest meals you can make at home. But I guess what I was thinking reading your piece was like at a certain point in history, you know, even something as easy as, as butter noodles would have been like incredibly labor intensive to make. You're exactly right. Like, <laughs> like making this pasta was, it, it wasn't um, easy, easy. It was definitely like a uh, simple because there was just so much handholding, but it was definitely like a process. Um, Can you walk yeah. us through that process? Yeah. So you have to provide the wet ingredients yourself, which just consists of eggs and oil. But from there, you know, you make like a little like a, a flour well slash bowl shaped thing. Um, and then you pour your wet ingredients in, you mix it up, um, you uh, roll and knead and fold it um, until you get sort of like a thinnish uh, layer of the stove. Um, then you fold it up uh, and then you cut it into like little slices so that when way, when you pull it out, it becomes like noodles. And I feel like that's like the best part of it is when you see like the pasta actually become pasta because then it's like, oh my God, I made a thing. <laughs> that's so yeah, wild. Yeah. <laughs> I just tried to get as uh, philosophical uh, with this, but I know you wrote a piece that where you got a little philosophical about baking bread a while back. And I wondered if uh, you had any thoughts uh, along those lines, um, you know, d- deep thoughts while you were uh, making this pasta. Yeah. So I'm going to be very honest. I did write that bread piece at like 3 a.m. I think. <laughs> um, and this is when the, this is when the pandemic was just starting to start in like the, in America. And I was like, I was just so, I was so, so nervous. Um, and all these thoughts were sort of like bouncing around in my head. And I think I was just trying to like expel them <laughs> from my brain. <laughs> um, so I ended up writing this probably like super philosophical, probably too philosophical. I was definitely reading into too many things, a uh, piece about uh, baking bread and why everybody was doing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I was basically talking about like, it reminds us that we can still make things. And I feel like we've gotten to a point in the 21st century where we're just so, um, we're so fortunate to have like things that may not seem like luxuries to us right now, like, oh, like bread that comes like prepackaged or whatever. Well, for one, I mean, it gives you a um, insight into that, um, into that saying, it's the best thing since sliced bread. I never understood that when I was a kid. Um, but uh <laughs> 
the fact that you can go to a supermarket and buy sliced bread at any time, um, you know, when, once you actually have to make the bread or the fact that you can go to a supermarket and buy dried noodles uh, at any point, you know, when you actually have to make the noodles yourself or you don't have to, but you did it as sort of a, a fun project, um, puts things in perspective. But it sounds like you're also saying the piece that you wrote about the bread, you had a lot more to kind of um, to think about and to mull over at that point. Now you're a little bit more of a pro at uh, at sheltering in place. And um, <laughs> this has become more of the new normal. And and maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe just making noodles. It, maybe it was just nice to do something with your hands and you don't have to get as philosophical with it. Yeah, especially because I feel like... <laughs> Like my job just requires me to be on a computer like all the time. Um, so this was just a really great pivot. <laughs> um, and it's also like, I feel like something that people are realizing now is that, you know, when you're stuck inside, you have so much more time on your hands. And that's what a lot of people were sort of struggling with in the beginning. They're like, what am I going to do with all this time um, where I have to be indoors? Like, how do I cope with this? Um <laughs> which is it's such a bizarre concept like having to having all this like anxiety and nervousness over having free time um yeah <laughs> and it, it just made me think a lot about like oh wow like we're always like sort of like I think about pre-pandemic life and I think about how like rushed I was and how pressured I was to sort of always be doing these um like things on the side outside of my job to always like have like to always need to you know be constantly be out and about because that to me was what I was supposed to be doing like I'm in my early 20s I'm supposed to be like out there exploring the world the the um hanging out with friends like all the time yeah well um it was it was a it was an entertaining read you can read pasta from scratch is easy with Mr. Holmes Bakehouse on our website under the dining tab thanks again for joining us Grace yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me.